Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. This is episode 14, Efficiency versus Performance. Mm-hmm. Okay, welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. How's it going today, Chris? going well it's uh it's almost like i'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel at the end of the tunnel so is that is that the is that the vaccine news from covid or is that just the end of marking which tunnel are we talking about i'm talking about school okay (laughs) (laughs) but uh feels like there's a few tunnels we're traveling down we are done our i mean for me the light is at the end of the tunnel uh conference uh, conference, the virtual conference season, as I'm calling it now, has now ended. It's interesting doing conferences digitally, especially ones that I'm used to attending in person. In some ways, it's better. In some ways, it's a lot worse. I feel like t- 10 times as many people sign up to the conference and 100 of those people actually attend the virtual conference. So I feel uh, maybe... I'd be curious to know how much money some of these digital conferences have made, especially if they've been really aggressive in their pricing to uh, attend. Because I bet there's just so many people who will sign up for like 10 different conferences and go to like one. So maybe the coffers of these conferences are like just bursting at this point. The interest, this cost of running them is so low, right? Like for one, we did a it was Open Education Global. It was supposed to be in Taiwan. I was really excited. I wanted to go to Taiwan, but that's not where I went. And it was online. But they still had it in Taiwan time. So I was thinking, I can't present this live. It's going to be like 4 o'clock in the morning. This is terrible. So we signed up to do a pre-recorded presentation. And so there's all these pre-recorded presentations. And I and then I went in to check our views. And I think I had like five. <laughs> <laughs> but there was so many people who signed up for the conference. I'm thinking, this has got to be a mistake. So it's it's all very interesting. Yeah, and I bet probably the people are going to view the recordings later on when they have a chance. Well, I hope so. I spend a whole hell of a lot of time putting it together. So it would be nice if like one person uh, watched it and commented on it. That would be ideal. But anyways, it's not a big deal. Are you up to anything new? Same old, just uh, keeping my head down and just working. That's probably good. Okay, well, I guess we can get into our EdTech office hours. So uh, you and I were on a uh, panel discussion for the Mount Royal Faculty Association on teaching online, which I thought went pretty well. We had some good questions. We had good feedback. I don't know what the attendance was. I don't remember, but I I remember it being quite high. Yeah. and I said something on on that panel, talking about resources for online teaching, and it sparked a couple of questions. So I got some questions from the attendees. So I figured I would make this the EdTech office hours, even though that was a while ago, um, just because they were interesting questions. And what, what I said on the panel, and you were there, was that uh, people who are developing online resources should probably look for what exists rather than try to create everything from scratch. So the question is, is that what are, the question from some of my colleagues was, what are the best search engines or repositories for finding open educational resources? So I have three suggestions. Um, I'll do a bit of a preamble, just so uh, in case people don't know, you know, open educational resources and or the open education project is about 20 years old at this point. But I think, only now with on emergency remote instruction, as we're still calling it, is there kind of a growing understanding of, of what these are. So these are openly licensed courses, textbooks, teaching and learning materials, etc. Usually creatively Creative Commons licensed. Uh, you know, it's kind of a dog's breakfast in terms of the licensing and what's available out there. So historically, finding open educational resources has been a problem. My colleague, Michael McNally at the University of Alberta's Uh, School of Library and Information uh, Studies have been looking at online courses and kind of taking a sample and studying them. And what we've actually found is that the discoverability of these resources is is very high, which is super encouraging because for a long time, one of the problems with OER was that you could nobody knew how to find anything. There are these terrible databases like Merlot. Well, a good database, but not well known and has a terrible search. 
So the discoverability of open courses like MIT, TU Delft's open courseware, all this these awesome resources is really quite high. So there's now a few federated searches that are good for kind of searching across lines. So I'll start with the most common one, uh, OER Commons, and I'll put these in the, the show, note, uh, show notes for this episode. The OER Commons search is probably the most used and, and really the best branded. Uh, it allows you to search for anything. It's pretty simple keyword search. You can search by the subject, discipline, uh, education level. So we talk about higher ed primarily, but there's lots of K-12 OER. Higher ed has kind of moved more into open education than K-12 because it's less standardized. But you can kind of narrow your search. There's an advanced search. You can search for images, uh, videos, lectures, full courses, textbooks, all that stuff. And I believe... Um, most of the stuff from BC Campus, which is kind of one of the world leaders in open textbooks, is all indexed through there. So that's a good one. I really like the search called Oasis. So that's oasis.genesseo.edu, and I'll put this in the show notes as well. It's a little bit nicer of a search. The advanced search uh, reminds me a little bit more like a library website. I think it might have been designed with librarians. And it has a bunch of curated sections like course materials, textbooks, courses, interactive simulations, learning objects. So it kind of has categories that you can browse by. But my favorite search, uh, which is by far the most complicated to use and the least appealing to look at, but just in terms of pure functionality, George Mason University set up this George Mason OER MetaFinder, which is called Mom, which I think is super funny. And it it's a federated search. It searches across every OER database that I can think of. So it searches across BC Campus, the Directory of Open Access Books, uh, Merlot, MIT OpenCourseWare. It searches Oasis and OER Commons, OpenStax, the Open Textbook Library, World Digital Library, Project Gutenberg, the Library of Congress, JSTOR, Open Access, Hathi Trust, every major open content. Uh, either openly licensed or not on the web, it does this soup, this meta search and searches across everything. And you can search for full records, you can search by title, you can search by author, limit by date range, and you get this really cool breakdown of your search results. So those are the three places that I would look. Um, the two are easier to use, but if you really want to do some advanced searching, or if you know you're looking for a particular resource like a book, and you just want to target searching across all of the book databases at the same time that George Mason University OER MetaFinder is really fantastic. I've actually recommended a few of these uh, to my colleagues at Mount Royal who are building their own course or, or making their course in OER, and they found it super helpful. So better than ever uh, for searching for open educational resources. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, we've come a long way. They used to be really awful. So I mean, it could only get better, so I can't give them that much credit, I guess. But um, the search engines are really quite remarkable. And with that, we can get on to our news. So for this episode, we have foregone our discussion item. It was kind of a toss-up. We have a lot of Apple stuff today. So for people who run Windows and don't like Apple, you probably want to skip to EdTech tips. Uh, this is more or less except for one news story, an Apple-heavy news story, but for uh, news section, but for good reason. And we rolled our discussion item today, which is going to be Apple Silicon Max, uh, into the news stuff because it is it is really news. It's not really a discussion item. So we may do a fall. I don't know what we're going to do for a discussion item. That's kind of our optional section. I'm going to start with the non-Apple news uh, just for the people who don't care about the Apple stuff. And this isn't a particularly long story, but... There's some recent news about the online learning platform. Uh, I called it. I call it Udemy. But what do you? How do you pronounce it? I usually say Udemy. 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 I like Udemy because it sounds like you dummy. I think it's really funny. <laughs> it's yeah. I had a debate with someone once. We were talking about uh, this the company who does like the stylus tablets, and he's like, "I got a new Wacom." I was like, "Wacom? Is that what they call it?" I've been calling it Wacom. I think that's better. I think that's funny. <laughs> so I think we did well in our branding of this podcast by not choosing a name that people debate over how to pronounce. I think that's like 90% of the battle. But anyways, 
Uh, Udemy is a great online learning platform. I've taken some courses through them. I think some of the free stuff, I think they, they charge for, you can get certificates. Great online learning platform. I highly recommend it. It's up there with LinkedIn Learning for me. But the Chinese tech company, Tencent Holdings, and Tencent owns a bunch of stuff. What else do they own? Don't they own like WeChat and Weibo and, and all of that stuff? I think they also have a big stake in, in gaming, maybe a partnership with Epic or something like that. Or they bought a big gaming studio. Anyways, they're investing in everything. This big Chinese firm. Uh, and they have invested a ton of money into uh, Udemy. Uh, Udemy said Wednesday, so this is uh, November 18th, uh, and around valuing the company at $3.25 billion before the new investment. So the San Francisco-based company named Learn Capital as one of the firms participating in this round. Didn't disclose whether Tencent was an investor, and it's unclear how much Tencent contributed. But they are investing a lot of money in Udemy, which is interesting to me because... Tencent's one of these companies that has its fingers on a lot of different pies. And with many of these big kind of conglomerates or these big tech companies, they're all kind of starting to put one finger into e-learning. No universities, of course, strictly private online education. So Coursera um, is the big competitor to Udemy in, in terms of paid online certified courses. But I don't know. Do you have anything to add? I have a couple of thoughts on this, but what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we've discussed this uh, in the past, but there's really only a few uh, industries that are kind of ripe for disruption, one of which is education. There's also healthcare, And um, a lot of people may not be that familiar with Tencent, but you know they're probably one of the bigger companies in the world right now that are fairly influential if you ever uh, want to go and learn a little bit more about them and the implications on society there is a book by amy webb called the big nine and uh, the uh, you know tencent is one of the big nine companies uh, there's basically uh, a bunch from the u.s and then some from china that's a good point i have read that book and i totally forgot that tencent I think she has a couple of different big nine, depending on how you shake it out. But I forgot that Tencent was one of them. It's interesting, too. I mean, this is not related to Udemy, but these private um, private platforms for online learning. We talked about the Google certi certificates, so the kind of um, online courses or programs that Google is rolling out that they're going to consider uh, as equivalent to degrees. They've rolled out one of them. I'm kind of tempted to take it just to see what it's like. It's uh, it's not a programming course. It's not usability or UX, though those ones are coming. I'm really interested in their usability certificate or their UX whenever it comes out. But the one that they have launched is kind of an IT professional. So kind of the equivalent of A plus certification. And I think it's a good, I think this program that they've launched on the Coursera platform is actually a a good precursor for taking the A plus certification exams if you want to be an A an IT network analyst or something like that, which is actually a pretty good paying job even at the low level. So it's interesting to me that they're partnering with Coursera and these platforms. Um, I wonder how long it takes before they buy one of them or they make their own. I was kind of surprised that they didn't launch their own. I I don't know what kind of secret sauce Coursera has. To me, it just seems like a public learning management system like Blackboard, like it scales well, but I don't know what's special about it. But it seems like uh, these companies would almost certainly prefer to have their own platform with lock-in at some point, have their own Coursera. Maybe they just don't want to build it out right now. But Yeah, no, for sure. Um, by the way, if, uh, if people want to know what the big nine are, so basically uh, Amy Webb, she calls the, the, one, the ones in the U.S., they're called the G-Mafia. So it's a Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, IBM, and Apple. And then the ones in China, they're called BAT, which is Badu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Am I the only one who thinks that IBM should no longer be on that list? I mean, IBM International Business Machines was you know, in the in the typewriter business before computers. They've been around for so long. I think they made weapons during World War II. I think he's like rifles and stuff with IBM stamped on them. It's amazing to me that IBM is still relevant. 
And I mean that in a good way. I mean, good for them. But I'm just blown away by the fact that they are still... That, that has to be a record um, for the longest reinvented company of all time. It has to be. They're, they're called a big blue for a reason. And uh, if you look at it, one of the, the kind of uniforms for business people in general would be like wearing a blue suit because IBM, you'd be walking out of their IBM towers and everybody would be wearing a blue uh, you know, business suit. So, well, there's actually a really good book on IBM. I have not read it, so I, I'm assuming it's a good book. It has really good reviews called IBM, the rise and fall and reinvention of a global icon. Actually, we have it at Mount Rob, but apparently it's a really cool history. I think it's written by James W. James W. something, James W. Cortada. So I'm curious to read this. Just an interesting piece of technology history. So do you want to get to the big news? Well, wait, wait, I'm going to work my way up. We're going to do the M1 chip last. So I'm going to, I'm going to cycle through the other news stories because otherwise I think that these will get buried. So there is, we're onto the Apple section now, regardless. And there's a couple. So the first one is Apple's secret weapon in AR is right in front of us. So this kind of leads into this. So Apple, we did our back to school episode where we talked about, you know, the best phones to buy iPads. Chris and I, you, we both have the, the 2020 iPad Pro. Have you used yours a lot? I've been using it for marking and, uh, you know, there's some things that I like about it. Uh, uh, there's, it's funny because some of the apps, they don't have the full functionality. So it's almost like you, you basically have to get into the website. But uh, some of them are pretty good and, and it takes my... Um, you know, takes me away from sitting in front of my desk, so it's nice. Yeah, you use the pencil, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've been pretty happy with that, especially with the high refresh display. I had the old model before, and it, it never had a problem with lag, but I find with the high refresh display, it's super, super snappy. That's one of the reasons I went with the Pro. But one of the things that the Pro does have, which I don't use at all, which is now rolled out into new iPhones, are these AR cameras. So there's essentially a lens that has a LiDAR scanner, so it does depth perception really well. And this combined with Apple Silicon, which we're gonna get onto talking about the Mac news, uh, they're saying is the secret weapon for Apple to roll out augmented reality. So Apple's been talking about augmented reality for a long time. Augmented reality being putting holographic images through a screen in the real world versus a VR environment, which is completely closed off. Some people refer to these technologies as XR when they combine them both in, in, the, in the same sentence. So they're very, very different. And I think there's probably a lot more room for growth with AR because it's a little bit more uh, collaborative. It's a little bit more social. But essentially, now that there's these LiDAR scanners and all their phones and tablets, and I think there's something like a thousand apps already that can, take, that can make use of them. So people are using these to do uh, scans, uh, measure the distance for rooms to put in furniture. I think one of the big... Um, first AR apps, I'm not sure if it's been optimized for the, for the LiDAR, was the IKEA app, so you could like place furniture in your house and stuff like that. It's pretty amazing. But eventually, the, the theory is, or the, the rumor, is that they'll roll out some sort of headset, some sort of glasses that have all this built in. So they have the super low-powered chips that don't use very much power, that are screaming fast, but they're also learning a lot by gathering all the data and seeing how people are using these LiDAR scanners. So we're kind of doing... Uh, this stuff in the background. The news story that I'm talking about comes from CNET. And it's interesting because it has a couple of scans that people have done uh, of, of for, you know, environments with their device. So one of them is, is like a, it's like a birthday meal. So there's like a cake that's been cut into and there's a bunch of food on the table. And from a distance, it just looks it looks like the real thing. And then you zoom in and of course you can see some pixelation and stuff, but just the quality in terms of scanning and the resolution is really remarkable. When I worked at the University of Alberta, there was a, an add-on for the iPad that basically plugged into the lightning port and you had to mount this big camera with a LiDAR, I think a similar kind of a LiDAR scanner to do this. And it was a $500 add-on. Uh, and I think these built-in lenses do a way better job. So it's just fascinating the kinds of high-quality 3D scans you can get, not just for 3D printing, but just 3D imaging or being able to manipulate and look at and zoom in on objects in 3D. It's really cool if you scan like artifacts from 
museums and archives and things like that. So I, I've just been quite impressed. So it's interesting. It also, I was telling you before, Chris, it kind of reminds me of uh, these, these products that are rolled out and they do one thing and they do their job fairly well. But the goal of the company is actually to get something else. So, you know, Amazon started out as an online bookstore, but it's not really a bookstore. It was it's really in the logistics business and the warehouse business and the, now the data hosting business and the cloud business. Uh, Roomba, all these companies or the other companies that have these uh, robot vacuum cleaners, they technically they're terrible vacuum cleaners. They technically do their job, but it turns out they've been scanning uh, house layouts and stuff for 10 years so they have all this data on where people place their furniture and all this stuff so this idea that who owns the futures who owns data uh, is is cropping up across all these different products whether it be apple and scanning google and maps amazon and logistics you know now apple and, and lidar and all this stuff so i find it interesting that there's kind of a different agenda behind these behind these technologies that are really being beta tested on, on human beings. Yeah. And I mean, it, it has huge potential if you start thinking about like, especially how it can go and do the measurements. I mean, I, I remember a company back in the day, it was called uh, Tango and um, Google actually bought them out. And so it was called Project Tango. And back then it would allow you to, within a very small um, uh, deviance, be able to go and measure out full rooms. And obviously now the, the chips have gotten that much better. And so imagine, you know, we could walk into any room and get the measurements as a realtor or an architect. I mean, there's there's so much potential. And like you mentioned, even uh, with Ikea, now you can go and plop in uh, the actual furniture. And it's almost like the, the property brothers just using your iPad. Yeah, it's just it's remarkable what we can do. And I think when the LiDAR scanners came on the iPad, people were like, well, this isn't very useful. And there's kind of a taboo on using the iPad as a, as a viewfinder. People who take photos of their iPad at uh, con concerts and stuff are basically pariahs at this point. Nobody likes to do that. But they tested it there. Makes sense. And then rolled it out into the phone. So they knew that the LiDAR scanner worked before they put it in the most important product. And now they're... Uh, Though people are scanning all sorts of stuff, which is probably super valuable for Apple. Yeah. And I mean, even one other thing that was kind of cool, too, is, uh, you know, with the iPad, like you could actually take a picture and then drag it into, let's say, your Mac. Right. And so, again, like that's where I think it, there is some cool uh, synergies that are coming up, especially with uh, uh, the iPad having its own OS uh, that's going to be in, you know, working in conjunction with the Mac OS and so forth. Which is a good segue to the real big news. Dun, dun, dun. We talked about this when it was announced. Apple announced at their uh, summer, I think it's June, the Worldwide Developer Conference, WWDC. It was online this year, like all of their conferences. They've had three announcements in a fall. That has to be a record for them. So they've gone to these online conferences and, and, and developments and they're so much better. They're right to the point. They're an hour. They cover everything. And so they announced in the summer that they were going to do their own Apple Silicon for the Mac, meaning that they're going to use the technology, the same type, architecture type, that they've been using in the iPad and the iPhone into the Mac. And that's not surprising given that Intel really sucks right now, or they have really dropped the ball in terms of heat management. Uh, I think their newer processors, the 10th gen, are fine. I think they're a huge improvement, but they're just not keeping up with the innovation. So it's kind of slowed Apple down. So now they finally got what they want. They make everything, not in their own fab. I think they're all done with TSMC, which is a Taiwan fabricator. But these are five nanometer chips. Uh, it's called the M1. And Apple just released, you can buy them now if you can get your hands on them, three computers that have it. So they have the MacBook Air, which has this M1 chip, that MacBook Air, all by the way, all these computers have the same physical design. They did nothing in terms of the design whatsoever. So this is really first generation. MacBook Air has gone fanless, just like an iPad, doesn't need a fan. The MacBook Pro 13 inch entry level. So the MacBook Pro 13 inch is a weird beast. It's split between the real 13 inch Pro, which has four uh, USB-C Thunderbolt three ports and the one that has two. And the one with the two ports has always been kind of gimped. It's not really 
a pro machine, but it's sold as a pro machine. Uh, so they've updated that. So that's basically the same as the MacBook Air, except it has a fan. And what's maybe the most interesting is the Mac Mini. So all of these computers have the same processor. There's no difference. When you go to choose the computer, you don't choose you know, an i3 Intel versus an i5. You don't choose the clock speed. All you choose, you get the chip, and all you choose now is the the amount of memory, which is unified memory, which does make a difference, or the hard drive space. So the options for customization are even less. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just really simple. Um, you know, Chris. I so we've been looking at some reviews about this. What is your takeaway so far? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things, even with regards to the choice, I you know. We as in society, we might have touched on this before, but I think a lot of people, uh, they actually want less choice. You know, you don't want to go through and have to, uh, you know, if you have this menu in front of you and, you know, you don't want to order everything off the menu and make it like a buffet. You just want to keep it simple and get the thing ordered. But um, I mean, the the biggest thing that kind of struck out to me, and I mean, I've been even now rethinking like what is going to be my next and um, I think what really stands out is this Mac Mini, where the price point is much lower. And especially in the foreseeable future, I don't know when we're going to get back to, um, you know, face to face and stuff. But like right now, I have two monitors, plus I have my Apple Cinema display. I mean, the unfortunate thing with this Mac Mini, um, it, does, it doesn't have that many ports, so I can only go and output it out to two monitors. But still, it's not bad. Um, it actually, from a processing standpoint, is faster. I mean, it's it's interesting, even again, like, with, you know, if you would think about from uh, just a technological development and innovation, you know, maybe you might go and focus in on efficiency. Maybe you focus in on performance and, you know, there's a balance. And here Apple, they're like, let's do both. So not only is it more efficient, but it also is uh, performing much better. And, you know, I think from a, it is maybe this Mac mini now has finally become an ideal machine for people where uh, while it might have some limitations for the, the ports and the, the peripheral options, um, you know, Apple really, it didn't rock the boat. In fact, I, I would say maybe the boat is faster and longer lasting and it's, it's better. It hasn't taken on any water at all. And, um, you know, if you look at even the other products too, the, um, uh, the MacBook Air. So, I mean, essentially what it is, it's a, an iPad with a keyboard. Uh, probably that MacBook Pro with the 13-inch because it has the fan in there. It'll allow you to go and run the, the applications a little bit better because it, just from a heat to dissipation standpoint. It's interesting you talk about an iPad with a keyboard. That's essentially what this is. So these M1 chip, there's very little difference between these computers. Like you said, that the Pro has a fan. So does the Mac Mini. So if you're running, if you're doing 4K video output, which sounds crazy that you would even do that on on a MacBook Air, but I'll get to the performance things in a bit, which explain why, because this is quite remarkable. Uh, the fan, even on the same chip, actually does make a difference because it allows the processor to work under load before it gets to a heat that has to be throttled back. So for people out there who are like, how does this work? Well, if you have a processor that doesn't have a fan, it's basically told that it can get to a certain heat level and it doesn't want to melt itself. So after it gets to a certain heat, it'll start throttling down the performance. So then typically, depending on the chip, you can get, say, let's say you can get 10 minutes of sustained load at maximum speed before it has to start throttling down or something like that. So a fan or some sort of active cooling system allows you to throttle down uh, less frequently. What's interesting about this MacBook Pro, not only does it make it uh, so it doesn't have to throttle down as much. Nobody can even hear the fan. So the fan on all of the, the benchmarks barely even kicks into maximum gear. So on an Intel computer, the fan kicks in. It's like super loud. Oh, I mean, much quieter than their Windows counterparts, but you know, much louder than these new chips. And what's interesting is that the benchmark scores. So keep in mind that real-world use versus benchmarking isn't, isn't really... Uh, going to filter down to, you know, if you notice the computers faster. So, and we'll get to, you know, if people should have buyer's remorse and stuff in a little bit, if they bought an Intel Mac recently, and I recently updated one, I don't think that they should, but here's, here's some of the benchmarks. 
So Geekbench 5 is a pretty, pretty common benchmark tool. So for single core, meaning that one core of the processor is working, not all of the cores, the new Mac Mini, MacBook Air, and MacBook Pro all scored pretty similar. So the MacBook Air was the slowest at 1,677. So I'll explain, these are relative numbers, so I'll explain this. The Pro got 1,683, and the Mac Mini got 1,701, probably because the Mac Mini is a little bit bigger inside, doesn't need a battery, it can cool itself a little bit better. And these benchmarks are from uh, one of my favorite Apple blogs called Six Colors, so Jason Snell, uh, veteran Apple writer, uh, used to be editor of the uh, Macworld magazine, awesome guy, he did these. Now, MacBook Pro 13-inch uh, 2020 four port so this is the very recently updated intel macbook pro scored 1174 17 sorry 1683 versus 1174 and that's the high-end intel macbook pro from 2020 so these are the low-end apple chips that have been launched the high-end chips that are going in the better um, 16 inch MacBook Pro or the iMac or the iMac Pro or the Mac Pro haven't even come out yet. These are the, this is the cheap stuff and it's already benchmarking 30%, 20% better. The MacBook Air from early 2020 got 995 on single core versus 1677. This is probably the biggest jump in computing from architecture to architecture or from year iteration to year iteration on the same platform I have ever seen in my lifetime. Um, really remarkable stuff. In multi-core, very similar, right? The 13-inch MacBook Pro uh, that benchmarked, uh, the, so the 2020 Intel-based 13-inch MacBook Pro, so the high-end one, a multi-core got 4,440 versus 7,257 on the entry-level M1 chip MacBook Pro. Apple's still selling the Intel ones at a higher price, which I find interesting that they're selling the slower Intel Macs alongside the faster, cheap ones. I mean, they're kind of in the awkward transition right now. And it's just, it's just remarkable. In fact, the M1 chip pretty much rivals... It's the only thing that it's slower, that's slower than this outside of, you know, the, the Mac Pro. It's really on par with the i9 16-inch MacBook Pro, which is like a four or $5,000 laptop. I mean, of course, the iMac Pros, you know, these, these desktop computers with, you know, many more cores, Intel cores, Stuff like that can benchmark way higher. I mean, the Mac Pro with like a 28-core processor is going to store like 20,000 or something. That's not really comparable. But these M1 chip Macs are actually benchmarking at what the highest-end Intel laptops were benchmarking at only six months ago for double or triple the price. And this, again, these are the cheap Mac chips. I have no idea what they're going, what's, what the performance is going to look like when they release an iMac or a Mac Mini Pro that has two of these in it. Because like these are teeny tiny chips, it's fascinating to me. It's the processor, it's the GPU, it's the it's the memory. Everything is on one thing, uh, and it's a unified memory, so it's shared among the whole chip. So it's it's just incredible performance. I mean, I can see now why they went to their own silicon because it just blows what Intel has to make out of the water. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the other thing too. Like the, you're going to notice that the Macs are faster, they're cooler. You're going to get way better battery life. The other thing that in this unified chip, you also gain machine learning features over time. And, you know, uh, we suppose that they can go and run iPhone and iPad apps if the, the users aren't that picky about it, the functionality. Yeah, so that's a good point. So because these run Apple Silicon M1 chip is basically a Mac, a more it's a more souped up version than the iPad chip because it's running a more complicated machine and a more complicated operating system. But essentially, um, you can run iPhone and iPad apps if the developer has allowed it. 
So there's a lot of apps that just that the developer has said, forget it, like it's going to be trash on a trackpad and mouse. So they, they haven't. But for a lot of apps, it makes sense. So one example, I use a, a podcast app that I love that I actually I pay for. I, I donate money to it called Overcast.fm. He's a great web player, um, but you can now run the iPhone, iPad app right on the desktop and it works perfect. Um, all of this stuff. So it's it's pretty impressive. There are some downsides to the M1 chip. So we, we, you and I have had some discussions, Chris, about buyer's remorse. If, if someone bought like an, an Intel uh, recently, I have a fairly recent Intel. I have a MacBook Pro 16. Um, you know, should you upgrade right away? Should you, you know, abandon ship, sell? Well, there, there's a couple of things that I that I, I would say. The performance is better. And the performance uh, in terms of compatibility mode, so running... Um, Intel x86 apps through Apple's translation software, Rosetta. I mean, it seems to run them as well as natively on an Intel Mac. They're much better, of course, if the apps are designed for Apple Silicon or they're designed for the iPad and iPhone. There is a couple of downsides. If you use Windows, um, you can't use Boot Camp anymore. And I don't know how well Windows can be virtualized in the M1 chip. I haven't I haven't uh, gone down that rabbit hole. So that that's a downside, especially if you have a, a Mac that that's Intel based where it has a custom GPU. I know that the Apple GPU and graphics are really good on their devices, but I don't know if they're as good as um, an AMD dedicated GPU, especially if you game or if you play on Windows and you play games and stuff like that, or if you use specialized software, it might not translate over. There are a bunch of x86 apps that in theory should run on Apple Silicon, but they don't, they break. So this is very much, I think, a beta test. I sent, uh, Chris and I looked at this video from a Photoshop, uh, kind of a Photoshop YouTuber, a great YouTube channel, I'll put it in the show notes. And he basically said that he's a public beta tester at this point. I mean, Apple didn't really go and change the hardware or anything like that. That's what, I don't know about you, Chris, but that's kind of what I think is the most interesting. I mean, they took the old Intel Macs and they swapped out the chip, but what could they have done in terms of the form factor in the second generation? Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, so this is the other thing too, right now, like we don't know what they're planning for the future. I mean, conceivably, you know, they're probably going to come out with Mac Minis and MacBook Pros with more ports and you know options that way. So again, I, I think if somebody has the option and isn't uh, you know re- requiring a an, a new computer, you probably want to wait like maybe a year or two. And do we really want to be these beta testers or guinea pigs for this first uh, generation? Yeah, and I think I think ultimately it's better. Even if it's tempting, I'm, I mean, day to day, I don't think people are going to make a huge difference. Like using an Intel, I have an Intel Mac. I have a 16 inch MacBook Pro. That's the 2019 model. I have a six core i7 with 16 gigs of RAM and a half a terabyte hard drive. And the thing is a tank. I mean, it just flies. I actually get really good battery life. I think I probably get a good eight hours at least, which is more than enough for me. I don't need a 20-hour battery life at this point because I only take it from my office to my wing-back chair in the next room. So I'm not exactly going to coffee shops, especially right now. I think for people who have an Intel Mac that they bought recently, the benefit is that these are going to be supported for a long time. There's a lot more Apple devices out there than the last time they made this transition. When they made the transition to Intel in 2005, there was not that many people with Apple laptops. They were super expensive so I think the G, the um, the PowerPC chips that were made by IBM, they were abandoned within a couple of years. And that, but I think people got a good five years of updates and support for their devices. So well supported. I suspect the same would happen now, if not better. I like the ability to run Windows. I like some of the flexibility. I think x86 is still a really good platform. And of course, I don't see the PC industry uh, going to ARM uh, anytime soon. But you know, it's certainly something to look for in the future. We had another news article, which I skipped, which is related to this, which is what does this mean for education, which is probably what's important here. And I think what's interesting for, for students, if you don't need a computer now, like, don't worry about this. But especially for people who are, you know, oh, I might need a computer in a year or two. This is really interesting. One of the things that I, I struggle with to tell students about is that depending on the program, Sometimes students have needs that go way beyond word processing and simple tools. 
they really want to be, they don't need to be full-time video editors, but they need a computer that can kind of handle everything. Even if it's not the best video editing computer, it should be competent. The last time I could recommend a laptop to somebody that was a competent everyday workhorse, but was also, you could spec out enough to do video editing, podcasting assignments, was probably the 2013, 2012 MacBook Airs. Those you could, you could, they were thick enough that they had good circulation. They didn't have a super high res screen to power, but you could put an i7, uh, you know, not a mobile chip, but a, a, a proper Intel chip in it with 16 gigs of RAM and a big hard drive. And you could actually pump out some really good video. But in recent years, Apple's really gone for thin and light. And that has a serious trade-off in terms of heat. So these these uh, entry-level devices that they've had in the last five years just really choke, even on audio editing, never mind video. So this is the first time I think we're going to go back to consumer notebooks and desktops being actually really competent for even 4k video editing uh you don't have to be a pro i mean pros will still go for the pro stuff but i mean this is great for students and, and teachers i think because it means that it's going to unlock all sorts of pro apps are going to be so much they're going to run so much better and will be so much more accessible well, and then the other big, huge thing is that the, you know, just from a student perspective, the costs have come down so much. And just from a functionality, like, I mean, you could imagine this is really going to go and unlock a huge amount of potential for, you know, producing lower cost laptops that are going to run circles around what's available out there. I mean, I, I look at, uh, if you remember, there's actually a Calgary based company called Smart Technologies where we had interactive whiteboards and, you know, that company, uh, it was during its heyday, it was one of the most successful companies here in, um, in Canada for education. But along came Apple with their iPads and, you know, are you going to go and pay something like 10,000 bucks or even higher for this interactive whiteboard when you could give everybody in your class for less than 10,000 bucks iPads? Right. And now this is going to be that big next leap. I mean, the other thing that uh, we also chatted about offline was uh, who knows in the future, we may not even need laptops anymore. Like I'm I'm actually thinking in the future, like one of the reasons why I would normally have a laptop is sometimes you would maybe need to go and do some work um, in a cafe or maybe you have to show something to a client or what have you. But now, like, I mean, I'm getting pretty used to my Apple Pencil. There's uh, even just some of the voice recognition software. I'm thinking just even from, uh, you know, um, hauling things around and keeping that separation of work. Uh, I think I'd much rather have a dedicated desktop. And I mean, my laptop right now, I'm pretty much, it's functioning as a dedicated laptop, uh, or I mean, desktop. And having a you know some type of convertible device where it, it could be like this ipad pro maybe it has a, a a keypad with it or something a keyboard maybe it's a small keyboard that you just take away uh, around with you but maybe you don't even need it with the voice recognition software yeah it's it's an advantage of having technologies that you that you own as a company the ability to make everything uh, integrate everything perfectly. This is why the iPad, I said, when we, when we did our back to school episode, and we were talking about iPads, uh, which can, if you're willing to work within the confines of the OS, a good productivity machine. But I said, it's not worth paying for these keyboard covers. You want what you really want is a tablet that can become a desktop and go back to a tablet. The laptop I don't think the laptop factor form factor will go away. There's something about the clamshell. I've used the surface. You can't use it on your lap. It's impossible. The kickstand is just no good. Like it's not weighted very well, but the iPad becoming a desktop is cool. And I, that's what I do. I mean, I've abandoned Apple's in-house keyboards and I just, I have a nice stand for the iPad that, that, uh, that packs up, it collapses. I have a regular travel case and I have a fantastic real Logitech keyboard that's Bluetooth pairs to multiple devices. I can go into a coffee shop. I can have the iPad on a stand. It's higher up. I can put the keyboard with down below. So it's ergonomic. I can even connect the mouse that has fantastic track support and the iPad outputs to 4k monitors. So it's not, you're right. It's not much of a stretch to go to 
a one device for everything. I mean, if 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 macOS Big Sur, which is the big is the new release, uh, can run on Apple Silicon, then can macOS Big Sur run on the iPad? Now, it's not really designed around touch, but you can see where they would become more unified over time. Yeah, no, for sure. But yeah, I mean, overall, like I, I think this is, it's a huge announcement, um, uh, you know, and then I, I think tomorrow we can probably go back to debating all the other issues that are wrong with uh, Apple from their walled gardens to even, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, the Apple store now has actually uh, made significant cuts to their small business side of things. I look at from a repairability standpoint, like you can't go and repair anything with Apple unless you take it to them. Um, you know, and then there's other things like uh, you already alluded to in terms of um, even uh, their manufacturing is done through uh, Chinese labor. Now they're even using Indian labor and there's a bunch of other things. But really from a, a technology enthusiast standpoint, like this is something huge that we can celebrate. It, you know, as you mentioned, like this doesn't happen in your lifetime, in my lifetime, this something to this level of advancement hasn't happened uh, in a long, long time. And it'll be interesting to see how the industry moves forward uh, from this point. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I think it's worthwhile that we can move on to our last segment, which is our EdTech tips. So we have two tips or two categories really today. Uh, did you did you want to take it uh, go first, Chris? I've been doing a lot of the talking. Sure. I mean, I, I can go with um, uh, the one thing that I was going to review, which is uh, I don't even know if it's probably the best uh, you know name of our company, but uh -huh, which uh, basically it is a uh, video conferencing add-on that you can go and use and it's multi-platform. I've been using it now for a little while, but it it takes your remote presentations to the next level. I mean, I would describe it to uh, similar to like if you were going and broadcasting news and uh, let's say it was the, the weather person and now you can go and manipulate things behind you and, you know, uh, move to the side. But uh, it really allows you to go and make high quality video content in minutes. Uh, you know, it can uh, uh, allow you with the, the interface just to make it into almost a fully functioning production studio. And so what it allows you to do is, uh, you know, uh, if you have certain slides, you can have them behind you. They could be big or small. You can, you know, talk over your slides. You're actually on the slide itself and you can hide yourself if you need to. You can also uh, have a laser to point to things again, because it's just cool to have lasers, I, I suppose. Uh, you can customize your actual uh, video background as well to have a video backdrop. So, you know, there could be uh, something dynamic that's happening there. Uh, you can also, and especially for us who are teaching and maybe even for students, like if you're going to be doing group presentations, you can let a partner run the show while you go and focus in on the pre presenting and focusing in on the actual performance. Um, you can record the presentations for playback and then upload those again. So it won't be, you know, the kind of like the traditional slide deck uh, without your voice. You can actually go and talk your way through some of this. And so, you know, you can say goodbye to the, the boring kind of static uh, slides and make it much, much more multimedia. I, I do find uh, there is a bit of a lag. Like if I was to go and use it in Zoom, I think I'd rather go and use the Zoom background just because of the, the blending in, uh, there seems to be a little bit of a, um, a processing issue. And hopefully with over time, they'll get, resolve some of those. But uh, I think especially for us here, like at Mount Royal, where we go and use uh, the G Suite, within Google Meet, now you can go and create a virtual background where you didn't have that ability other than using Chrome extensions. And so it's very seamless that way. It basically, you open up the, the uh -huh app and uh, you can go and basically use it in Zoom or in Google Meet or any other video conferencing platform. Yeah, I, th I think it's great. It does remind me, it's very similar to open broadcast software, which we, which we did talk about, but it's a little bit more seamless. Honestly, everything but the name. Like, I can't say it to people. I'm using, mm -hmm. they say, excuse me, like I, this actually happened. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, nobody, nobody took it seriously, but I think it's super cool. I like these third-party plugins that kind of augment uh, existing video conference software. I wonder how long it'll take before it's Sherlocked. I guess I have to explain that now that I think of it. People might not know what that means. Uh, that's when a company comes out with something really cool and then another company that's this new app is dependent on gets kind of all the features get incorporated by the bigger company. So uh, that happened years ago when Apple used to ship with a really fantastic search app called Sherlock, like Sherlock Holmes. And then they came out with Spotlight and stole all the features. Uh, anyways, so we'll see how long it lasts or you know, Google will just buy them and absorb it into whatever they're doing. I do like that it's multi-platform, which is really cool. I'm a big fan of these multi-platform apps or plugins that work across multiple systems. I know a few instructors too, because they teach at multiple places, they have to use different uh, video conferencing suites to teach. So this idea that you can learn one piece of software and it ties into everything is pretty sweet. I, li I like that a lot. I don't have a huge uh, revelatory uh, tip today. I just wanted to come back to writing apps. We are right now our, our number one episode or our trending episode is actually number nine, Capture, Configure, Control, where we talked about uh, productivity tools. Um, I've been playing with some more productivity tools, particularly around writing apps. So I, I just wanted to come back to this because I've been training myself. I'm in the process of, of putting together a, a book that I want to write that I've been thinking about for a long time. And it's, you know, you can always open Microsoft Word or Apple Pages or text file, I suppose, and start writing your book. But I wanted to try something that had a little bit more control over layout, uh, design, etc. So I've been playing around with this tool called Scrivener. It's been around for a long time. It's a dedicated writing app. Uh, I, I don't. I won't say too much about it, other than it's a it's a fantastic layout. It has all the the typical WYSIWYG uh, text edit tools that you'd be used to, but it's a little bit more fleshed out. the The big thing that it has is on the left hand side of the tool or the of the program. It's called the the binder, which is kind of like the equivalent of if you had a binder with like tabs and sections that you wanted to switch back and forth to quickly. Everything's kind of designed this way. The program has a bunch of templates, which may be new. We're not totally sure. I don't remember what the older versions of the software were like, but there's a template for like fiction book, APA paper. I'm using a general nonfiction template right now. And you can set a manuscript, you can have a forward, you can divide it into chapters, but you can also have sections for ideas or notes. Uh, you can pull in, like if you're doing research for a book, you can pull in all of your documents like PDFs and, and files and stuff, just kind of like a citation management system. You can have them side by side so you can see what you're referencing as you're writing your chapter. You know, easily move chapters around just through drag and drop. And then also export to really nice formats in every single file type. So ebook, uh, EPUB, Microsoft Word, PDF for markup, all of this stuff. So if you want to write up a book and then send it to a publisher, you can also put in notes and forwards and summaries um, for all of the different sections you create. So it's complicated. It takes a bit to learn. It does have a really good text um, training section that you can kind of read. It takes about an hour, I would say, to read through. And it teaches you the features. They also have a really nice breakdown on their on their YouTube channel. So they have uh, an iPad app too. I don't know if it's on uh, Android. I haven't checked. It's primarily, I think, like a Mac a Mac app. Actually, is it a Windows based? No, it's a, they have a Windows based as well. Yeah, they, but I don't know if it's Android. Do they have Android? I don't think so. Maybe. Sure. I don't know if they have a Play Store. Windows and Mac, and then iPad and iOS for sure. But. You can sync documents between mobile and desktop. I think it works best with Dropbox. Uh, pretty cool. I, I've been impressed with it. I'm gonna use it, I think. Uh, the, the other writing thing I want to talk about is actually something that uh, my colleague mentioned, my colleague uh, Indy Langu from, from Mount Royal in, in Mathematics and Computing uh, alerted me to some pretty cool open formats so a lot, of, a lot of people in math and computing, as I understand it, they don't do a lot of writing. Well, I'm sure they do writing in Microsoft Word and use these tools, but especially when they're writing math and equations, um, or even or even not doing that, there's a there's a formatting or a formatting standard for writing called LaTeX, which is common in the sciences. Uh, so that's the format 
but there's a bunch of tools that you can use to write LaTeX. So one of them is called Overleaf, uh, and there's a free version, and it allows you to do equations, mathematics, uh, tables, create images, as well as just format. It's, it's very similar to using Markdown or HTML for writing, but it, it makes beautiful layouts. And he, he mentioned to me that it may be something to look into and recommend because ultimately uh, it's just a really simple markup to learn, but then you get a really beautiful output. You don't have to mess around with kind of legacy tools like Microsoft Word that can bring in weird settings and stuff like that. There's also a uh, pretty good overview on Overleaf about uh, with an example too about how to learn LaTeX um, and some examples and stuff like that. So it's a really nice uh, kind of pre uh, markup language for formatting text and people he knows who don't even work in that uh, that field of math and science still use it as kind of a standard for a lot of their writing. So I just wanted to highlight those as cool writing tools. Um, maybe people because of you know the second lockdown are thinking about writing their memoirs or something. So this there's a lot of really great tools out there to help you manage what you're writing, which I'm pretty impressed with. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I know for the Scribner side of things, um, it was uh, a colleague of mine uh, that actually recommended it who finished his PhD while working full time. And he, he said it was a lifesaver uh, just to, to go and do that dissertation. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, I we got this to go and review for the our podcast, but uh, my initial kind of thing just got busy. And I think there's a bit of a learning curve. So I'm, I'm looking forward to now trying it out and and see uh, just in terms of from a productivity standpoint, uh, I, I think it definitely will help people out. And especially if you're going to take on a, a momentous uh, task, uh, such as writing a, a large research paper or a book, uh, maybe it's a dissertation, it probably is worth the, even that investment of, um, you know, it's I think it's 20 bucks for the uh, iOS app. And then I believe for just the actual um, Mac side of things, it's uh, about like $30. So it's not a huge amount. Um, and it does allow you to go and use it for free. Um, or actually for the Mac side of things, um, it's $67 and $57 for educational side of things. So, And I might have balked at the price um, had I not played with it. So uh, first I'll say thanks to you, Chris, for letting us, reaching out to Scrivener and getting it, but also a big thumbs up to Scrivener for allowing us to use it. And we'll make sure to tag them on our, on our post and our social because it's been really cool. After going through the, the tutorial and playing with it, if there was a new version, I would buy it. I also remember the days of Microsoft Office used to cost like 300 bucks and people would line up for the latest version outside Future Shop, which no longer exists in Canada. It's all Best Buy now. Uh, they used to line up for software in the box on CD-ROM. Nobody does that anymore. So it's a pretty inexpensive suite given what it does. I just love the ability to manage different sections and you're not screwed over if you write your book or your manuscript in the wrong order. It, there's all sorts of things you can do to change it and it's super easy. So I'll link uh, the video to the YouTube in particular in the show notes because I think that demonstrates quite well how people can navigate it. So with that, that's pretty much our episode today. Uh, Chris, where can people contact you? Uh, you can find me, my website is uh, Chris Hans, uh, Chris with a K, K-R-I-S-H-A-N-S dot C-A. And you can find my uh, social media handles on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, my company is marketgrade.com. And I'm Eric Christensen, and you can reach me at my website, which is ericchristensen.net. Uh, you can reach me uh, through Twitter at E.G. Christensen, and I also have a blog on technology, uh, tech-bytes.net, techbytes.net. And I'm going to be writing up a kind of a, dis a distillation of some of the um, Apple Silicon stuff that we talked about today and my thoughts on the industry. So that should be out by the time this podcast is published. So I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. Well, this has been fun, Chris. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks. Awesome. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. 
You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTech Examined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.